If I haven't met you yet, my name is Anna, and I have the privilege to read scripture aloud for us today. So um, let me get you the page number. The Bible is in front of you. We're at page 875, which is Luke chapter 16, and I'll be reading um, verses 1 through 13. Go ahead and stand with me as we read God's word. He also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, um, it is possible to learn a good lesson from a bad example, uh, which is very important to know as we're doing this parable because it's a little bit different. Jesus just seemed to commend a really uh, crooked, deceitful guy, but it's because in life you can learn good lessons from bad examples. I was actually told, I think in middle school or high school, this idea, and I've, I've taken with me ever since, is that wisdom isn't actually learning from your own experiences, um, but the experiences of other people before you have to go through them yourself and learning from their character and, and what they do. And I was told earlier that, hey, you can learn something good even from 
from the worst people. So for example, there might be people who are business people who are crooked and don't do things well, but they might do other things really well. They may be very greedy people, but they also may be just very good and savvy at business, and you can still learn um, from them. You can learn good lessons from bad examples. And that's what Jesus is doing in our parable this morning. He's taking a person who's not the best of people, but he's trying to teach us some good principles and lessons from his life and from his story, specifically around the right use of money and the right use of our lives. Now, wealth is huge in the Bible. Um, There's over 2,000 verses in the Bible about wealth and possessions. That is more than faith and prayer combined. Um, Jesus and his teachings and the parables that we're covering, over one-third of the parables are on wealth and possessions, and he teaches us about it other places really, really, really frequently. Uh, it's a big deal. And why is it a big deal? Because wealth is a big deal in our world. We live in a world of wealth, and that is, I would say, especially true in America. Um, I was doing some research in the past couple weeks, and I found out that the average American individual, so this isn't families. If it's families, and it's even more. But the average American individual will make $2 million in their lifetime. It's between 1.13 and 3 million. So I just kind of, let's just land in the middle. Let's just say $2 million in their lifetime. Now, if you're like me and you're a visual person, like it's hard to get my head around like $2 million. So um, I thought it'd be good just to have a visual for those of us who are a little bit more visual people. So let me just put in stacks of stacks of $100 bills here on the table. For those of you who are in the back, tempted to move forward to be closer to Jesus. Um, this is not real money. So no need to move forward right now and get a little closer to me. But yeah, I'm just going to put, start putting all this stacks and stacks of these $100 bills. Each pack right here represents 10K. So yeah, so let's just kind of put this in just kind of a visual way where we can kind of get our head around this and how much an average American will make in their lifetime. Give me a second because I have another bag. Um, Just stacks and stacks and stacks of money. We live in a world of wealth and in a country of great wealth. So much so that one thing I've got to point out for us right now, now that I have all of this cash up here, is this is actually right here only one quarter of what the average American will make in their lifetime. It just was too much money for me to justify getting fake money to put on the table for a sermon illustration. So I just did a quarter of it. And so this is $500,000. One quarter of what the average American, what you will make in your lifetime. Now, for perspective, if I took away, let's say 100K, so there's five, there we go. If I took 100K away, this right here is what the average person in the world will make in their entire lifetime. One quarter of our lives, the entire lifetime of the average person in the world. I, I don't do this this morning to make us feel really guilty and really bad for having money. If you're new to Redeemer, we did a series in the fall on, on wealth and possessions. You're like, well, why are we teaching on it again? Because we're going through the parables and one third of them are about wealth and possessions, so it's just bound to happen. But in the fall, if you weren't here, just so you know, and you don't get like, ah, like, where are we going with this? Like, what we taught in the fall is God gives us things to enjoy. Like, God gives us life to enjoy. And really, it's hard. I was thinking about this earlier. I can't think of much that you can enjoy apart from having some measure of wealth to enjoy it. We're like, well, what about nature? I've got to pay to enter into national parks. I've got to pay to drive there. Unless you want to do, like, naked and afraid style, you've got to pay for the clothing that you're going to have on. If you go outside and enjoy nature, like, you have to use wealth to enjoy pretty much everything in this world. And God wants us to enjoy it. Like, Scripture tells us that. So, money is not evil. It's not the enemy. 
but it is a really big deal, and that's why God talks about it a lot. In fact, two themes emerge in Scripture over and over and over again about wealth. Number one, it is dangerous. It's dangerous. It's not evil, but it does carry some danger. Um, I actually have just some scriptures just to kind of get our minds around some of the danger that this poses. Um, In Luke 12, Jesus is speaking. He says, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed because life does not consist in abundance of possessions. In Luke 18, Jesus looks at a rich person and says, how hard is it for the rich to enter into the kingdom of God? In 1 Timothy 6, 9, and 10, the apostle Paul is speaking, and he says, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction for the love of money, not money itself, but the love of this is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through craving this, this craving, I say, that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So wealth is a dangerous thing because it tempts us to trust in it instead of God. And as we just heard in the passage that Anna read, it tempts us to serve it instead of serving God. And here's what's really crazy, is when Jesus and Paul was saying these things, Jesus' disciples in the early church was mainly made up of peasants, of the poor, of people who would make a fraction, a small fraction of this over their lifetime. So if it was dangerous for them, how much more than dangerous could it be for us? So part of the Bible's teaching is that there's a lot of danger for money, so we need to make sure and use it well and use it right. But there's a second part of money, and that's its potential, that it actually can be put to use to have a great impact on this world and on the next. We saw that even, for example, in the pictures we just showed a few minutes ago. Those books, you either went and bought them or you donated them, and at one point you did buy them, and then they were used to make an impact. The Bible is also clear that money is only dangerous, but it actually has this ton of potential for good if we will use it rightly. And Jesus in this parable is going to show us how to use it rightly by teaching us some good lessons from a really bad example. Now, that being said, uh, this parable is uh, really controversial. Uh, it's a, it's, many people would say is the trickiest controversial parable that there is, mainly because Jesus seems to commend a guy for cheating his master out of a ton of money. And he holds this guy up as an example. Um, I'm going to go ahead and diffuse that tension and say that's not what Jesus is doing. He's not commending him for being dishonest and being a thief. That's not what he's doing. He's just simply using him again uh, to teach some good lessons from his bad example. But it is a little bit tricky. And so to be careful, what I find helpful when I come across a tricky piece of scripture and especially a parable is I like to just break it down simply and just put some simple statements of what's going on just to kind of get my head around it, and then say, okay, in light of this, what are some of the things that Jesus is trying to tell us through this parable for us to live in light of as the people of God? So that's what we're going to do. I'm actually going to put a graph on the screen that we're going to walk through that I think will just help us get our minds around what Jesus is really doing in this parable, and then therefore what he is trying to tell us. If you're in the back and can't see it all, we'll probably send it out via, via our loop. So you'd just be looking at that for tomorrow, and I'm going to say it so you can at least follow it a little bit on the screen. So let's walk through the parable simply together. So a steward has a master. Um, in the version that we just read, they were called a manager. 
Um, in this day, very wealthy people um, did not manage all their different uh, possessions and affairs and businesses. Instead, they would appoint stewards, and the steward would manage the property for them. Now, here's what you got to know about a steward in this culture. Number one, none of the steward's possessions they were put in charge of were actually there. So the money, the possessions, the wealth was the master's. It wasn't theirs. But when they acted on behalf of their master, it was binding. And so whatever they deal they whatever deal they made, it was binding on the master. It was as if the master had done it, including, let's say, um, a steward was let go as he was going to be in this parable until he was publicly repudiated, until he turned in the books and then publicly was said, this guy is fired because he did not do a good job or because he stole or whatever. Anything he did was still binding with third parties and the steward would not be liable to any loss that was incurred which kind of begins to make sense in light of what he did, but we'll get there in a second. So a steward has a master who this uh, parable also says was very rich, but the steward is managing this. Well, apparently he's doing a bad job because we see second, he's facing a future judgment for how he stewarded his master's wealth. The master hears of these charges that are brought that we don't know if it's because he's crooked or because he's incompetent, but for some reason people say, listen, this guy is awful. He should not be your steward. Apparently the master already knew this because he didn't even give him a hearing, he just immediately says, you're fired, oh, Donald Trump style, turn in the books, you're done. And so at this moment, like this, the steward, the manager is in a lot of trouble because he, he looks at it and he says, man, I can't make money. He says, I'm, I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm too ashamed to beg. Now, remember, Jesus is speaking this parable to mainly peasants. So you can imagine like when they're hearing this, what they're thinking about this guy right now. Like this guy to them is not the hero. He's the crook. He's the villain. And now he's like, well, I'm not like peasants. I'm too ashamed to beg and I'm not strong enough to do manual work like peasants do. So I can't do that. So he's already been held up as this really kind of crooked, not favorable guy. But he's in trouble because he can't provide for himself. A steward's lived on their master's property. So now he's going to be homeless and his family is going to be homeless. So this guy is in a world of trouble and there's a future judgment coming his way that is going to harm him in many ways. And so he's wrestling and he's struggling. It's like, man, what? In fact, he actually at this point says, man, what should I do? Key, key question. As he's looking to the future and what's coming, he's okay, like, what can I do? What should I do? to take care of myself. And then we see what he does. He then, next slide, will be put up on the screen, acts shrewdly with his master's wealth. Shrewdly in this text means wise, but like in kind of a cunning, prudent, like do whatever it takes mentality. Like, he, he's, he's wise, but like in a way that's like, okay, I'm going to work the system in my favor. Like if this is coming for me, I'm going to be prudent. Prudent means you're looking ahead about what's coming and then you're going to act with care and diligence to make sure you take care of yourself. Like he says, okay, if this is coming my way, I'm going to do whatever it takes to take care of myself. And so what he does is he starts going to his master's debtors. And goes to them and says, hey, like, show me your bill. Now, when the steward does this, he knows what their bill is. I think he's doing this so that they would know the big deal that he's about to cut for them. And so what he'll do is he says, hey, show me what your debts are. They show him your debts. And he says, well, hey, let's reduce this sum. But, like, to give you an idea of how much this is, um, 100, I believe it was, baths of oil is equivalent to about 900 gallons. 
which is the equivalent of about two to three years of wages. So these are not small reductions. These are massive reductions that he's cutting. Um, the wheat would have been equivalent, some scholars say, to up to eight to 10 years of wages. So he's going around and saying, hey, let me cut you a massive, massive deal. And remember in this moment, anything he does because he has not been publicly repudiated is binding on the master. So if the master then comes in and says, hey, I know he did that, but I'm going to change it back. The master now looks like a greedy crook instead of the steward. Like this guy is doing whatever it takes, and he is wise and prudent and shrewd in how he does it, even if it's also dishonest and crooked. Like he knows what he's doing. And you can even imagine this was a reciprocal culture, meaning like when you kind of scratch their back, they scratch yours. In fact, a lot of times the word friends um, in this society was used of a mutually beneficial economic relationship. So the idea here is he's kind of making friends with people. And you can imagine after he's done this for these different debtors, they're probably saying stuff like, hey, if you ever need like a job or a place to stay, you just let me know and I'll take care of you. And the steward probably says, let me take you up on that. Sooner than you think. But I like that he knows what he's doing. He's working the system. And why is he working the system? This is the next key point. Because in, in a little bit, we're going to go back through this, and you're going to be able to see, like, hey, there's some ways that we should be like this tour, but there's some other ways we should not. Here's what it's for. It's for the purpose of self-preservation and exaltation. He, he's not doing this to make his master look generous. He, he's not doing this because this was his cut of the money and now he's not going to take it anymore. Um, he was doing this so that he wouldn't have to dig, so that he wouldn't have to beg. He wanted to keep the same level of status he had before, and so that's why he's doing this. So he is being shrewd with his master's wealth, but for the sake of his own self-preservation and exaltation. Okay, so... He's facing a future judgment. He starts cutting every possible deal he can, using as much wisdom and cunning as he can to put himself in a good situation for his own self-preservation and exaltation. And if you were one of the first like, listeners of this parable, or if you're like, reading it for the first time, you get to this point and you're thinking, all right, like, this guy is about to get it. Because put yourself in the like, shoes of the master, of the owner. If you had just been cheated out of almost 10 years' worth of wages... Like, it might be legally binding on you, but you're going to find a way to, like, deal with this. Like, two of you are going to go out into the desert. One person's going to come back. Like, you know, like something like that if you've watched Breaking Bad or any show like that. Like, it's, it's about to go down. Even if I can't, like, legally do something to the guy, something's going to happen to this guy. That's what you're expecting, which is why verse 8 is so shocking. Because it says, the master commends him. I put it like with an exclamation point and a question mark. Like, what? <laughs> like, if you're listening to this and Jesus says this, you're like, say what? Because again, I already told you, like, Jesus had been setting up the listeners and setting us up. Like, this is not a good guy. But then the master commends him. And this is where people are often thrown for a loop with this parable because it seems so weird. Um, some people see this verse and they try to reason it like this. Okay, it's the master. But then people are like, well, if it's the master, why would the master commend the guy who just stole from him? So some people come back around this and say it's Jesus because the word used for kairos is um, the word used for master, which is the same word used for Jesus when he's referred to as Lord. That is important. We'll come back to that in a minute of what I think is going on here. But, but I really believe, and I say most commentators believe that, no, no, like 
in verse 8, when it says the master committed him, it's talking about the master in the parable. Because otherwise, the story would have ended with, you know, he goes and makes all these deals, and you never hear what happened. It would have been a really weird way to end it. It's not like the master's committing him. Like, why would he commend him? It's not that the master is saying, man, I'm really glad you stole all my money from me. He's just basically saying, like, I got to hand it to you. Like, you are a cunning little foo-foo-foo-foo-foo. Like, you can just see, like, he is not happy, but he's like, you got me. Like, you got me. Like, I can't do anything, because if I, if I go back and change it, I'm going to look like an awful guy, and you're going to be the hero. I can't really do anything to you legally. So he's like, so this is not like, hey, I'm so proud of you for taking my money, but it's the more like, man, like, I got to hand it to you. You're a jerk, but man, you're good. Like, you are cunning. You're shrewd. You're wise. I got to hand it to you. But, but here's what I would say, though, is like, even with this, this doesn't really get Jesus off the hook. Because Jesus tells the story, and he's holding this guy up as a person we should emulate. <laughs> it's like, even though verse 8's not referring to Jesus commending him, Jesus isn't the master in verse 8 that's commending him, it still doesn't get him off the hook because he's still holding this up as an example, example for us. So, so what's going on here? There's really two options. Um, the guy is either just and what he did is effective— or the guy is unjust, but what he did is effective. I think we know enough of Jesus that it's probably option two. So like when Jesus is kind of holding this guy up, he's not saying, hey, this guy did what was right and it was effective. I think Jesus is saying, man, this guy did something that was wrong, bad example, but what he did was effective and we have something to learn from it. And actually, Jesus is very clear because Sometimes he does this in his parable. Sometimes he kind of leaves it for us to kind of figure out what he's doing. Other times he just says it. And this parable is a place where Jesus just lays out in verses 8 through 9 what he is trying to tell us. Let me read it for us. He says, for, meaning he's interpreting the parable for his hearers, the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than, so it's a comparison, the sons of light. People who are know Jesus are following him. People who are Christians. People who have placed their faith in him and are now following him. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwelling. So use this to make friends for yourselves so that one day they'll receive you into heaven. So Jesus, let's just say this out loud, gives a little bit of a rebuke here to his followers. He's like, listen, there was this guy who, man, he did not know me, does not follow me. He is not a great guy. But when he sees a future thing coming and he finds himself going to be held accountable for how he used his master's wealth, he does whatever it takes to prepare himself for that. And he says, listen, in my experience, I'm speaking as if I'm Jesus. Jesus is like, listen, in my experience, those who follow me don't do the same. They're not as shrewd. They're not as do whatever it takes with their stuff in light of what's coming than this guy. Now, what I want to do, though, to kind of help us break it down a little bit more is go back through the parable, but instead of kind of doing more of the explanation, which we've done, I now want to talk about, like, the implications of even a little bit more of what Jesus is talking about. Because even like you saw, like, Jesus used the words more and then it's a comparison. This is a how much more parable. And in a how much more parable, like I think I told you earlier, they'll use a bad example, but then they'll say, hey, there's some ways that you can be like this, but you should also be even more like this because you have so much more to live for and to do. What I want to do then in light of that is then now compare the implications side by side for us and use this to continue to walk through what can be a very tricky parable. So 
In the story, a steward has a master. Well, here is what I believe this is simply saying for us. You are a steward who has a master. You're a student as a master. Earlier when I mentioned that that word kairos is used for the idea of the word Lord, I believe that that's part of what Jesus is doing here is he's using a little play on words. And he's like, I am your Lord. I am your master. And scripture tells us that everything we have, in fact, the entire world belongs to the master, belongs to Jesus. Um, Psalm 24, um, 1, I believe. Sorry, I'm just pulling up my notes. Um, actually says that all wealth comes from God. I believe we're going to have it on the screen. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, those who dwell therein. First Chronicles 29, 14, which in the context is where the people are giving an offering, part of their possessions to God. It says, who am I and what is my people that we should be able thus to offer willingly? For all things... All things come from you, and of your own we have given to you. Here, here, let's just be honest for a second. We're tempted to look at our possessions and look at this. And, and listen, I didn't even say, like, there's the money, but also in, involved in this is all the stuff that this gets us, right? Because, like, in this money, which is just one quarter of what we'll earn in a lifetime, is the house we buy or the apartment we went. It's the car that we own. If you're a parent of a middle school or high schooler, it's like the 11 billion pounds of chicken nuggets and pizza rolls that they eat that feels like it make, takes up a quarter of this, right? It's all the things. So it's not just your cash because you're like, man, I don't have that much. That's for sure. Not. This represents not just the money we all, like, earn, but all the things that we then leverage into and use with it. And like, we're tempted sometimes to think like, oh, okay, so like, this is mine. And like, hey, let me take about 10% of like my lifetime earnings. And like, hey, God, here you go. This is yours. When in reality, what scripture teaches is it's like, no, 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 like every bill is God's. Like, that's why I love this visual. It's not like, hey, here's a little bit. Like, no, every little bill of this belongs to God. We are just in temporary possession of it. And we are stewards who are then supposed to manage it as how God would want us to. Um, I saw this great uh, interview one time. It was with a celebrity who since then has gotten some trouble, so I don't know that I'll say his name and get your mind off on that whole thing. But uh, there was this uh, interview, and in, in the interview, the uh, person asked him, hey, when did your fine kids find out that they were rich? And the celebrity immediately just like corrects the interviewer and says, whoa, 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 whoa. My kids aren't rich. I'm rich. <laughs> like, I let my kids use my money. I let them borrow my money, but it's my money. And to that, every parent in here said, amen. And to that, God would also say, amen. It's mine. And we are simply stewards of it. And so because of that, we should be asking, okay, God, if I'm a steward of this, how would you want me to use this? We should ask that simply because we're stewards, but also because, let's go to our next point. Like we, you are going to face a future judgment over how you steward your master's wealth. Like 2 Corinthians 5.10 tells us, that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And that includes how we use this and therefore we should use it rightly. Like there's this idea in this parable and throughout scripture that our present use of this impacts our future judgment from God. Now I want to be careful here though. Because 
Here's what you need to know. And this is why, like, when I said this is a how much more parable, if we can get that uh, screen, slide back up that we just came from that, of the graph. Like, there are parts that overlap, but then there's parts that are so different. And this is one. Like, we as Christians who have a master that's greater than the master in this parable. Like, we have a master who, yes, sees how we manage his stuff and sees our entire lives. But here's the beautiful thing about our master that's different than the master in the parable. Our master, Corinthians, said about Jesus, who though he was rich, he became poor for our sakes by entering into this world. We have a master who, though you and I have not stewarded this well and we haven't stewarded our lives well constantly, Jesus came and he did for us what we couldn't do. He stewarded everything that God gave him in his life perfectly, even though we have failed constantly. And Jesus died for all the failures that we have, including how we have failed and continue to fail to steward this well. We have a master who came and died for his debtors and for his stewards. Like, that's incredible. And so the reason I say this is, yes, we are going to face a future judgment. But if you are in Christ, and this is the thing, if you are in Christ, if you're not, then what I'm saying doesn't apply to you. But if you are in Christ, Romans 8.1 says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So when it talks about facing a future judgment, when that's kind of inherent in this parable, the, the future judgment is not, are you going to go to heaven or not? No, no, no. Like, if you're in Christ, that's been settled. In fact, did you notice that it says the children of light? So when Jesus is doing this comparison, he's saying there's the people of this age, the people who don't know me, and there's the children of light. It's assuming that you already know Jesus. And so when we're talking about future judgment, this is not about if you get to heaven or not, if you get to have eternity with him forever. No, no, no. If you are in Jesus, there's no condemnation because you have a master who left his throne to pay the debts you could not pay. Amen. So then what's this future judgment about? We're going to come back to that in just a few minutes. Stick with me. We'll come back to that in a few minutes. But for now, we would say, hey, you're going to face a future judgment for how you steward all this stuff. So therefore, let's go to our next one. Just as our guy acted shrewdly with his master's wealth, so you should act shrewdly with your master's wealth. Like I would say like this is starting to get the main point of what Jesus is saying about the right use of wealth. In light of the fact that you have a judgment day coming where you're going to be held accountable for how you use this, and in light of the fact that you have a master who already paid for all the ways you haven't done this well, you should shrewdly steward his wealth with as much, if not more cunning, than the guy in this parable because you have more motivation you have an incredible master who's done so much for you, and you see how everything you have is his. Therefore, you should be all the more shrewd. And here's what shrewd people don't do. We've already kind of hit on this, but let's just do it again. Shrewd people don't say, okay, what's the bare minimum that I can give to God so he won't be mad at me? No, shrewd people say, like, this is all God, so how can I maximally leverage this for him in whatever he wants me to do? Um, I knew this family um, and when I, back when I was in Mississippi, very wealthy family. And, and listen, like they enjoyed that. And that's fine. Again, just I want you to maybe even here in the middle of the sermon, like it's, we need to hear it right now. Like this is not where, hey, you can't enjoy any of this. This is all God's. You're just a steward, so you don't get to enjoy it. But like, no, no, like Bible says God gives us all things to enjoy. But here's what they came to see is they were like, man, we want to be careful that we don't see all this money as ours to do with whatever we want with, but this is God's. We want to make sure that it's not becoming our master. Like the way they would say it, it's been said by other people, but it's just so great. Like, hey, we own possessions and we own money, but we don't want it to own us. So what they began to do is in every February, they would do something called No Frills February. 
And, and so they kind of had a budget of how much they would usually spend on eating out or gifts, non-essential things, and they would not spend anything. So all meals were like done at their house, and they weren't cooking like filet mignon. They were doing like, you know, just kind of as cheap as they possibly could. In fact, they would kind of like make it a game amongst their family of who could kind of like save the most money from all their different things. So they would do this all the month of February, and then what they would do is they would take all the money that they had saved, and then they would give that to missions and to church planning and to adoption funds, just as a way of saying, like, God, we want to do as much as we can to leverage what you've given us for what you want to do in this world. That's shrewd. It's saying, man, we want to create every possible idea of how can I use this for God? And that actually gets us to our next point. Say, like, whereas the steward did his cunning, did his, like, shrewd stewardship for his self-preservation, here's the difference. We do it for the purpose of other people's salvation and God's exaltation. So in the story, it was all about, man, I'm using this money and my master's wealth for me. But as Christians, they're like, we use this for others and for God. Um, Proverbs, this simple verse, but it's at the same time so important. Proverbs 3, 9. Honor the Lord with your wealth. Honor, another a word that we sometimes use for glorify, exalt, like, it's not, my wealth isn't about exalting me and making my life more comfortable. It's like, no, no, I want to honor God with my wealth. Also in the story we see in verse 9, um, when Jesus is, again, I think, making the main thrust of what he's trying to say. In uh, Luke 16, 9, it says this, I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. Well, who, who are these friends? Um, some people would say, um, they are people who are the recipients of our generosity. Um, some people would point to later in Luke 16, which I think Rob might be preaching on soon, uh, where there's a story about a rich person and a non-rich person. And then the story, once you read it, kind of does seem to make you think, okay, like the friends here actually involves real people who are going to like be there when you come into heaven and they are the recipients of your generosity. Also, throughout the Bible, we're, we're, we're told to be generous to other people. Um, there are people who supported Paul's missionary efforts and ministry in Jesus's. And so these were people who, because they used their wealth to fund that, they got to be a part of the work. And so they were part of what God was doing. So some people would say the friends here refers to people who are going to be the recipients of your generosity, and they're going to welcome you into heaven and say, man, because you use this for God's purposes, God used that in part to have me be here, and they're going to welcome you. Other people would say it's angels. Um, some people would say this is what's called a circumlocution, which is basically another word for saying this is going to be God who welcomes you. Um, I'm in the boat of what I think many commentators would say when they say, okay, well, is it people welcoming you into heaven? Is it angels or is it God? Yes. <laughs> Yes, uh, because in Matthew 25, there's this text um, that is talking about how we are going to be rewarded. We'll get to that here in a second. And what does it say? God says, well done, my good and faithful servant. Man, you stewarded what I gave you, and now enter into rest and enter into joy. So I think God is going to welcome you. And I also believe that angels will too. They're going to rejoice that you're finally home, that Jesus saved you in your home. And I think there are going to be people there who, if you will use this for their salvation and their good, they'll say, oh my goodness, welcome home. And I'm here in part because God used you to get me here. And that's going to be incredible. So, like, if I were to even, like, just say, like, like, well, like, what's the main idea of, like, how do I use money rightly? Do everything you can with what you got for other salvation and for God's exaltation, for others' good and for God's glory. To what end? And this is what our last part is. In the parable, the guy was commended. 
here's what I want you to know. You will be rewarded for it. You will be. Like, th- this is a theme throughout Scripture. We are saved by grace. If you're new to the church, if you're new to Redeemer, basically that just means like we are not saved because of what we do. But we are not saved because of how we use this. We're not. We're saved because Jesus lived the perfect life we couldn't live. He died the death on the cross. We deserved to die, and then he was raised to life. That's why we're saved. We're saved by grace. And then the Bible is also clear that all that we do is by grace. The apostle Paul says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. He used to be a murderer, and then he was a person who told people about Jesus. He said, the reason for that change is the grace of God. That's all true, but the Bible is also consistently clear that our present life will then factor into varying degrees of reward in the next life. I mean, just some examples so you don't think I'm just making um, this up and just kind of feeding this to you, although I always encourage you to search the scriptures. But these are just a few that we don't have enough time for me to give them to you all. But um, let's just look at a few quick passages together so you just kind of know that I'm not just making this up. 1 Corinthians 3, 15, 3, 3, 3, uh, sorry, 1 Corinthians 3, 13 through 15. Um, each one's work will become manifest for the day, capital D, Judgment Day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive what? A reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved. But it's only one through fire. So in other words, like, man, if it survives, if the work you did for Jesus in this worth, it will survive, and you will receive a reward. But if not, you are still saved, but there's this sense of you don't receive as much of a reward. Revelation 2.23 says it very clearly. I will give each of you according to your works. I mentioned earlier Matthew 25 in the parable of the talents. Go read it today. Basically, there's this sense of how people were faithful with what God had given them. He then rewards them accordingly at the judgment day. I even think, though, if we look at this story in the verse we read, you see it here. Um, Luke uh, 16, 10 to 12. We hadn't hit yet, but listen to this with me. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If you have then not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, this stuff, who will entrust you with true riches? If you've not been faithful in which is another's, Speaking of God's, who will give you what that which is your own? Um, some people uh, have used these verses to say, see, that what Jesus is trying to tell here is, hey, if you're not faithful in a little money, you won't be faithful with a lot of money. I think that's true. I think that is a generally good principle that you can support elsewhere in Scripture. I don't think that's actually what this is saying here. The idea here is that if you're not um, faithful with this wealth, God won't, it says, give you true riches. I actually think this is looking ahead, just like the parable was, to a future judgment. That the idea is my present stewardship of this will result in greater or lesser reward and stewardship in heaven. We don't know what that looks like. It could be greater responsibility in what we oversee in heaven. I don't know what it is. Here's what I want you to know. No one's going to be miserable in heaven. So if you don't get more, like, oh, I'm going to be miserable. No, you're not. Heaven's amazing. You're going to have a great time. But I will say how we steward this now impacts the reward we receive in the future. So let's now bring all this together. If that is true, how much more than the guy who is a crooked thief who didn't have the greatest master, how much more should we steward every bit of this that we can for God's glory and other people's good? Right? 
All right, let's, let's bring it together because we've, we've covered a lot. And I hope you've been able to follow me. I hope that graph was helpful. Again, we'll send it out to you because, again, it helps me sometimes when I'm in a tough text to just kind of break it down and look at it that way. Let's bring this all together. Um, I've talked about this morning how there's a right use of your money and a right use of life. There's really two options with your life and two options with your money, okay? With your life, you can be, I think we'll have it here on the screen. Number one, you can be the end. Like life can be all about you. And if that's the case, if life is all about you, man, earn all you can, spend it however you want. If it's all about you, like, spend it on you, go crazy, awesome. I will say this, life isn't going to be very meaningful for you. Because something is meaningful when it's the means to a greater end than itself. Something is meaningful when it's the means to a greater end than yourself. And that's where, listen, if you're not a believer in Jesus, here's what I'm saying, like, the Christians in this room, what we've learned is, is there is a greater end than us. We find it in 2 Corinthians. There's this beautiful, beautiful, beautiful verse that really tells us what life is about. He died, meaning Jesus, for all, that those who live might, not, might no longer live for themselves, not us as the end, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. The, the right use of my life, the best use of my life is when life is not about me, but about Jesus. That does not mean, if I'm the means and Jesus is the end, that does not mean that my life does not matter. It does not mean that my life is insignificant. What it means is that my life matters and is significant to the point that my life is about Jesus and not about me. And here's what I'm going to tell you. When you get this right, where you are the means, where you're saying, my life is no longer about me, but about Jesus, your money then follows. Let's go to the right use of money. Like, it can be, if we put that um, slide up on the screen, like, your money can be the end. Like, you can say, like, I'm going to live for money. Like, I'm going to serve money. In fact, although I'll say, most people don't say that, right? Most people would say, what? I don't serve money. Money serves me. If your money could talk, like, if this could talk to you, you know what it would tell you? That's cute. <laughs> That's really cute. Because your money would say, hey, I was here before you got here, and I'm going to be here after you're gone. So if you think, like, I'm serving you, that's cute, but if life is all about you and you're, like, using me to get what you want, you think that I'm serving you, but actually you're serving me. And that's why Jesus said you can't serve two masters. Because when life is all about you, you think money is all about you, but actually you're the slave. It's a trick. But listen, if we're people who says, no, 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 like life's all about Jesus, then guess what? Our money is no longer the end. It's the means. It's the way that I accomplish my means. I use this to exalt God and to see other people saved. I see this to see God be glorified and other people's good be accomplished. And that's when this gets fun. As when I ask this question, maybe if you want to write down a question, just even to begin thinking of like what's next for you is this. How can I shrewdly steward this? How can I shrewdly, shrewdly steward my wealth for maximum kingdom impact, for maximum impact on other people's good and God's glory? And what I want to do is like just give some like simple ways and some simple stories of how we've seen this. Because it's like, okay, like this is all good, but like what do we do with this? Like what does this look like? You're going to think Paul's going to now say you should give to the church. You should, but like, no, but like, that's actually like, again, I already said, like, if that's all we think of is, hey, let's give a portion of money to the church, like, we're not getting it. Like, no, 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 it's like, how can I use every possible dollar to make an impact for Jesus 
so that he is glorified and other people's good are accomplished. Both like they're now good and they're forever good. Yes, by all means, give to church, give to organizations. But I think that's just a starting point. Um, man, I've seen people do this, like, like steward and leverage this by their hospitality. Um, uh, when I was in Mississippi, I, I met someone who God had gifted them with a house and, and there was a ton of international students at the local college. And they did research and they found that the vast majority of international students, many of whom were from countries where it's really hard to get the gospel of Jesus to. And it's really hard, even if you're there for them to be open. But these international students would come over. They didn't know anyone and they didn't know the culture. And they did research that showed actually the majority of international students really long for someone to invite them into their home and for them to get to know people while they're there. But the vast majority are never have a meal with someone from another country in their home. And so what they said is that's not going to be like the case in my house. So they began like having meals, which meant that they were spending money on that food. But then also like they had used part of this money to get their house. And they said, but hey, I'm, I'm going to use my house. I'm going to use my possession to invite people in. And they began entering into relationships, like, like friendships with these students and sharing the gospel with them over years. Um, look up Rosaria Butterfield's story. She at one point was um, a devout, which is weird to say, but devout atheist, like hated Christians. What changed her was a pastor and his wife reached out to her and began inviting her into their home for a few years, had ongoing conversations that were very winsome and loving, and Rosaria eventually came to know Jesus but through that. They stewarded what had been given to them for maximum impact. And let me tell you, that was for Rosaria's good and God got the glory for it. You can do this for college students and, and give them a free meal because that's not very common home-cooked meal. All the college students said amen. Um, like I had a group of people that I knew in Waco, Texas, who they began renting out um, a jump house for Halloween because basically it was like, hey, we want to get to know our neighbors. And so instead of kids just like coming and really interact with the parents, like they had this jump house and all the kids would come. And while the kids were playing and like trying to burn off some of the calories from the candy, like the parents would be interacting with the other parents and getting to know them. It's a beautiful way to do it. So you could do hospitality. You could do some creative stuff. Like I said, for No, Frill, no Frills February. Um, when I was a college student, poor college student, um, we had this thing where people would paint this painting at camp. And I bought the painting for money and gave it to missions. There's so many creative things you can do. There's unique things. Like I've heard stories about people who donated stock to missions organizations or charities or to churches. I've known people who've rewritten their wills so that when those people died, part of their wealth was passed on to the church or onto different charities. Like there's unlimited ways you can do it. Be shrewd, be creative and use as much of this as you can while you have it for God's glory and people's good. Because here, here's what I want to say. Like when we do this, um, going back to this image that Jesus talks about how friends receiving um, you into heaven. Like here's what I think is going to happen. We're going to get to heaven and we are going to hear by God's grace, by God's grace alone, well done, good and faithful servant. And I believe like whether it's 10 minutes in or 10,000 years in, we're going to meet people who will start coming to us and say, hey, like, like I was that international student who you hosted and I eventually came to faith. Thank you so much for your generosity and for how God used you. You're, you're going to meet people who you've never met before, but they were people who came to faith through church planners you supported or missionaries you supported. And they're going to say, hey, like because you gave, you were a part of seeing me come to faith. And hey, here's all the people that I led to Jesus. And here's all the people, those people led to Jesus. And here's all the people, those are the people who led people led to Jesus. You were a part of that tree. 
And when that happens, here's what I know is not going to happen. You're going to have a wave of emotions and a wave of thoughts. Here's what I know is not going to enter into your mind. I really wish I would have held on a little bit more of this for me. If anything, I think you'll think the opposite. And so with that in mind, let's use this while we have it for God's glory and people's good. And let's see the maximum impact we can see through it. Hope you have a fun time this week being creative about what you're going to do with it and what you're going to do with what God's given to you. Um, let's pray together. God, um, uh, there's, there's part of this text that's just, it's weighty. And I don't want to run from that. Maybe, uh, if anything, maybe I did skirt around a little bit. Um, man, we are going to face a future judgment. I can imagine the steward in the story, like when he realized what was coming, like he took that serious and it was seriously like, we do want to like recognize that God, yes, we are saved by your grace, but at the same time, like we're going to be held accountable. So I pray that you would, because that really help us to take this seriously, help us not to think it's like an option or a flippant thing. Like, no, like this matters. But God, I pray that the motivation, and I really hope this has come across this morning, wouldn't be out of fear or drudgery or a have to, but God, when we see how good of a master you are. And when we see how generous you've been to us, not just with what you've given us materially, but what you've given us in salvation, God, I pray that you would put a spirit of just joy in our hearts and, and, and a spirit of excitement and a spirit of, man, I want to use my life for what matters most and I want to use my money for what matters most. So God, just put this oomph of man like I get to do this and uh, just put that in us. And God, I, I want to pray. Um, it really is cool. Uh, this is our part of the plan. We just got this email this week. Thank you that we already, in a sense, got to see some of that in this world. And God, and in terms of the pictures that we saw of those kids, God, I pray that you would do greater workload even than that, and that we would get to see some of those kids and teachers and faculty in heaven one day. And God, would you do the same thing with all the wealth and the way that we leverage it? Give our people creative ideas this week about how to do that. But in through all of this, Help us to remember that none of this will make us be loved by you any more than we already are. Lord, you came and you, you before you came to this earth, you saw every moment of our lives and every time when we were not going to steward this money well. And yet you died for us anyways because you love us. Help us to remember that and keep the gospel center in all this. Amen. Well, we're going to move to a time of um, communion. Um, if you're new with us as church, we do this every week. Here's communion. It's a way for us to remember the death of Jesus and what he did for us. Um, I, you can approach it different ways. And let me give you two ways that I like to do it in case you're like, kind of like, hey, like, how do I do this and how do we use this time? Um, whenever I read a text of scripture, I remember a couple things. This text is showing me the life that God wants me to live. Like, this is what he wants for me. But a second thing I remember is it also shows me what I can never do perfectly. And that's why he died for me. And so the reason I say that is if, is if I've been like preaching through this and you felt like, ah, oh, it's like some conviction of like, I haven't stewarded this and my possessions really well. Like, man, I hope today you've heard like what God is calling you into. But here's what I want you to hear right now. That if you have failed in doing this perfectly, like that's why he went to the cross. And that's why we do communion is to remind ourselves every single week after we go into the word that Jesus covers over our failure to live up to his word. And so maybe just in the moment, like sit with that conviction for sure for a few minutes, but then like just then move on from that and go and take communion and remember there's no condemnation for you if you are in Jesus, okay? 
But in addition to responding to God's word, this is also a great time just to, I like to reflect on my past week. And I like to just reflect on, man, just like where I was faithful, where I wasn't. And just then as a reminder then, everywhere I was unfaithful, Jesus, you're going to cover, you covered me. And every this week I'm going to be unfaithful, you covered me. And it's also just a chance for me to spend time with Jesus, to listen, sometimes to pray. Like whatever it is, just use this time to its maximum potential and know that Jesus is with you personally in this moment. We're going to uh, start playing a song, As You Feel Led. We have juice and bread over here. We have wine and bread over here. And then we have gluten-free packets in the back if you need that. Whenever you feel led, take communion, and then we'll worship together.